us all the option to leave the meeting, by the way. Yeah, as that. everybody vanishes going, no, sod this. Sod this. It's a British-based <laughs> rolling podcast. You're going to tell us all about sort of like how we can be as good as you guys were in Tokyo and stuff. Well, I was going to say, we, we, we don't want to give away all the secrets, which, which we have. Uh, don't we, Drew? So uh, that, that, that's part, that, that was one of my biggest concerns, actually. I, I think that's been one of the best things about Drew's career. He's just like, he's been so happy about sharing half the secrets. I had this great idea. I'm going to put it on my blog. Everyone can go faster. <laughs> uh, there's a lot more up the sleeves. That's all right. There's plenty there. <laughs> that's why I wears the puffy jacket. There's just so much material up there. So. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay warm, Burge. I'm just trying to stay warm. It is, <laughs> it is cold down. It is cold down here, lads. I think it's 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 just dropped below ten degrees. And for us, I mean, we're quite princess-like, as you know. Um, that 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 is sort of like Arctic conditions. So that's like I mean, when the wind blows from Siberia for you. I'm in the northeast of England. We dream of ten degrees. We dream of it in our summer. <laughs> It's, it's been a bit of an odd one in the UK because we've actually had lovely weather. So it's been like really bright, really dry for about three weeks, but it's also been really cold. I, we were kind of hoping that you could all like take turns and introduce each other. I just found a Zoom link. I just joined this call. Who are you all? What is, what is, what, 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 what is this about? Like, what's going on? We, we all have this thing in common that we like pushing boats backwards down flat rivers with oars. So usually we we in, we do like a brief introduction <laughs> to our guests and then let them take you know take the ball and run. But this is, I think Lou and I'm right in saying this is the first time we've ever done, we've ever talked to more than one guest at a time, and it is essentially the great Australian roundtable. I mean, this is basically your show. So we thought maybe you could Berg say how you know Drew, Drew know how you know Andrew, Andrew know how you know, and just. Just let the listeners know what they're, what they're letting themselves in for and what they're dealing with over the next hour, hour and a half of, of podcast. <laughs> I think so maybe they can get the small children and the dogs out of the room. Well, remind um, us that this is a family show. Broadly, mm. broadly, yeah. Bro- broadly family. So who would like to go first and who would like to introduce who? All right, I'll start. Jump in because, there, Birch. You know, uh, you know I'll, I'll start because... Broken Oars was actually the first podcast I've ever listened to and the only podcast I've ever listened to. Yeah. I'm I'm a bit old school. Like if you want to communicate with me, you tend to send a fax or something like that. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not sort of on the cutting edge of technology and whatnot. But um look guys, I um I I I sort of rode uh at at school and um, you know, all the way through school and, and Drew and I actually rode against each other um when we were at school. And um we that that culminated in the 1992 head of the river, um, where Scotch College, who drew drew road for one head of the river, and and my my school uh, Carey, which was a a Baptist school, actually came second. So it was the Presbyterians versus the Baptists, and um, and 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 the Presbyterians won with Drew and a whole lot of other sort of uh, what would you what would you say, Drew? Sort of quite well known. Family names in 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 the sport of rowing were were, were in your boat, and, um, oh, and the Carey crew had absolutely no one in it. Um, but um, but yeah, that was that was sort of I suppose where we first encountered each other. Yes, yes, and a long history. I think just to pick up on the Burge piece, I know that I'll introduce Andy a bit more. But um, uh, not only rowing against each other at school, but then obviously joining the same club and spending many years, um, dare I say, it, at the bar. 
and, yes. and famously, what I used to love was um, you go through this school experience where you, you're against each other, you're competing, but then you get to know these other rowers from the other schools um, and always just found Burge was always someone who loved disgusting rowing, um, had a real passion for sort of club and community in particular and just really looking after athletes. So, um, you know, it goes a long way back obviously now. For Andy and I, to introduce Andy here, um, what was fascinating was around the same time, 92 into 93, I got to meet Andy as a, he was a lightweight rower. Um, there was a group of lightweight guys who were training out of the club who were all aspiring to make the under 23 and then senior team. And what was really amazing was I was actually considering lightweight rowing at the time. And so, you know, there was a bit of a discussion about me potentially joining their lightweight four. Um, and so I met Andy and Nick Sadler and a few of the other guys. Um, one of the other guys had actually been at my school. So there's a little connection there. Um, I definitely went down the heavyweight route. Um, but what was amazing was by the time sort of 93 uh, state champs rolled around, Andy and I ended up being in a state championship pair for under 23s. And um, I think it was about two weeks of rowing together. His uh, advice for me was really simple. You've got two sides of your backside. Just sit still in the boat again. Sit still. Don't move around. And, uh, and it was that whole thing of really enjoying his passion for rowing um, and he'd come from Warrnambool, um, had come up through the sport from there, which is a regional area, um, and had joined Mercs, like Burge and myself, um, but had a real passion for rowing and had a really keen interest in terms of managing how it was on the boat. So um, that's going back to 93, Burge and I, 92. Yeah, yeah. And and I suppose, um, you know, Drew, Drew obviously, um, you know, got, got into the whole um, high-performance rowing stream uh, through mercantile and, and, and whatnot. I stupidly chose to do geological engineering at university, which meant I had about 156,000 hours of contact study per week that I had to do, plus uh, going into mines and, uh, and and whatnot. So it was very difficult to follow the, that, that sort of, you know, high-performance rowing stream, and I, I got myself into coaching very early on. So I, I was coaching sort of uh, over here in Australia, year nine, so they'd be sort of 13-year-olds um, and and continue to do that. And then um, I, I was lucky enough because um, Noel Donaldson was actually coaching at the school where I was coaching and he sort of dragged me down to Mercantile to coach as well. So that's sort of essentially how I got I got sort of sucked into, into you know, being involved more so as a coach at Mercantile than the, than a rower. So, um, and that was probably, you know, circa 1995, I think. So, so yeah. Great year. Great year. And you can imagine, guys, that I recommended to Drew that uh, he shouldn't pursue lightweight rowing because uh, I was a pretty big lightweight and we actually won the pair in a heavyweight pair in under-23s. So I think it was a pretty short-lived uh, discussion, wasn't it, Drew? Like after we won the heavyweight pair, your first year out of school, it's like, actually, we could probably do this. <laughs> well and truly. I think at the time I was uh, about 80 kilograms and you might have been around about 73 for that regatta. And uh, and it was it was an amazing little time was because was with Andy and the guys trying to make lightweights, and we had some very good lightweights for Australia. So, you know, that's what they were aspiring to. And and so to even consider lightweight was, was one of the conversations. But what I loved there was the heavyweight stream for me was the most obvious thing, but even just that formative sort of stage of 92, 93, 94, 95, Burgess talking about going to coaching. And I think all of us transitioned out of rowing at school into coaching really early on. So, so I think the three of us have had a love of rowing sitting in boats and then a love of coaching others sitting in boats even at a young age. And 
Um, and obviously, it's all been done through Mercantile Rowing Club as well that, um, that we're all very passionate about. When, when you say you've all had that kind of coaching experience, do you all feel that you've sort of like, you've all got some of the same fundamental principles from growing up in the sport at the same time? Or, you know, can you literally argue about the basics of rowing for an hour? Oh, only an hour. I, Wait, surely we I reckon I could take that one. One thing I'd like to just just go back on, and we don't need to unpack it, but just point out that I think when 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 Andy was talking about Drew considering lightweight rowing, um, part of the problem there was not the, the the physical size of Drew. He he's just not a bitter and twisted man like most lightweights are. <laughs> like he's, he's actually quite friendly. He's a nice person. He, he, he sees the positive in everything. So he, he sort of, he, he was never destined to become a lightweight because he just- He's quite rational too, Bert. He's very objective and rational. So, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think that needed to be just brought out and, and put out there early in the, in the piece. I think to your point, Lou, like we're really lucky um, at the era we were at Mercantile, yeah. we had some amazing coaches and Noel Donaldson was one of them. And- I think as a club, we're all pretty committed to a same sort of rhythm. And it was an interesting time going from Macon's to uh, Cleaver or Hatchet it Blades. Was, um, and, you know, Drew and I both had some back issues around that period where you're going from really rowing super long with Macon's to going into the Hatchets. Um, but, you know, the awesome force in 92 successfully went across to the um, Hatchets. But I reckon from a, in that period, that was probably the only thing that really changed. Um, we had a lot of tall guys in heavyweights, so it was always very long, very rangy, very flat, very hang on around the back. And, you know, I see the GB team at the moment um, and I see that rowing particularly last last summer season in Europe. And for me, that's pretty much how you want to row. I just thought it was excellent, you know, the guys and the girls through Team GB. Uh, and it did actually remind me um, of Drew's four when I saw the GB girls four. I just thought it was just an outstanding crew, um, how Rebecca Shorten set it up, how she stroked it. And I think, you know, at Mercs, we probably try and have a rowing stroke that even when 100% watts are going down, you look like you're not trying. And I think, you know, Drew and James and the pair were very good at that, where you could be absolutely flat out, but it still looks like you're not trying. And looking across the GB team last summer, I saw inklings of that, and I think it's only going to be better this year with some of the people you've got coming back into that team. So not that I want to give a huge rep to GB Rowan. That's not why we're here today. But I think what you guys are doing over there right now is is pretty close to what we were rowing in the, in the 90s. So if, if, if we went to, like, 1996 Olympics, we'd, we'd thrash everyone. Um, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> and we're also happy to lull you into a false sense of security too. That's, that's I'm, not, I'm totally convinced yeah. that you would be. To be honest, it's like if, if, if I was in British rowing and I heard about this like little meeting, I'd be saying, right, we we've got to find out what they think. But I mean, it, talking about that idea of being able to row at a hundred percent and look like you're not really trying that hard, other than the fact that you're zipping past people. Drew, I think uh, I think I watched you talk about this idea that becoming an Olympic gold medal, I think you're talking about the Tokyo Four, but you're also talking about the guys coming through the pipeline in Tokyo. 
the being an Olympic gold medalist these days is like a, it's a 12, it's a three cycle apprenticeship. Is it is getting to that point? Is there something that you can do to take a good rower and get them to the point where they can put everything they've got into the foot plate, but just look as though this is like a casual training row? Is there is 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 it always going to take 12 years? Is there something that coaches can do to accelerate that? Is there something the athlete can do to accelerate that? Oh, you can definitely accelerate it. I think there's every every athlete, every coach wants to get there sooner and faster. I think the 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 counter to that is if you try to push things too fast, you get the injuries, you get the illnesses. Um, and you also then create a, a technical framework that an athlete might use, which is overridden by just pure effort. Um, and the feeling of just create, create more load. Um, use the idea of the 12 years. So for me, when you sort of, you talk about rowing, being an older athlete sport generally, the athletes who do get a result when they're 21, 22, 23, they've got the opportunity to have an amazing career. And we've seen lots of athletes that have actually achieved first time out for the games. But I think you don't need to be the pinnacle athlete in terms of raw talent to actually get some amazing results on the way through, but also achieve a gold as well. And so, the idea of 12 years, the three cycles, for my mind, is when you look at Kim Brennan, for example, um, Kim Crow formerly, um, and you look at her sort of time in the sport where she transitioned out of athletics, um, highly competitive, great physical specimen. You know, it took that first four years to really get to know the sport. Um, didn't have great results first time around, supported to go a second campaign, then gets medals, multiple medals. The third campaign is the gold medal. Um, and even if you look at the Kiwi, uh, New Zealand sort of situation, I think, um, you know, for Hamish, it's a bit different. Um, but even that first Olympic game cycle was full of mistakes, full of not quite capitalizing on every bit of work they put in. So for him, it was a second game cycle. But if you look at Eric, it's three game cycles. Um, and if you look at, say, Andy Triggs Hodge, same thing, first time in Athens, you know, not the best result. Um, second time around, third time around, just dominance in the back end of his career. So, so I think everyone wants to get there early, but I think by focusing just purely on effort and just work rate, um, you often, if you do get there, it's hard to then keep repeating it and stay on top or even get faster. Yeah. I don't know if you've listened to it, but we had a chat with our old coach from Agecroft, Pete Holmes, and he had a phrase which was, good rowing looks lazy. And I just want to kind of throw it open to you guys. If we're talking about this idea of you can be working incredibly hard, but it looks like it's it's a nice lazy flow to just unpick the idea that rowing is fundamentally, it's a feel sport. We use a lot of technical language. We we talk, we we take on board a lot of data nowadays and we can break things down to, you know, very, very precise, even to the amount of force going through a foot plate or, or now you've got a t- you've got uh, telemetry coming through the gate. We all know when a boat is moving well. We've all had great outings. We've all had good outings. Obviously, some in this group have had much better outings than some of the rest of us. All of all of the coaching and discussions about technique um, and about what we're actually doing in a boat and the technical language that we use, is that something that we're using to get us to understand and find that feel? I'm, um, I'm happy to have a go at it, guys, because I'm coaching at the moment. I'm coaching my daughter, and we've put all the technology away because the thing I wanted to teach her first up was rhythm and feel and almost like the boat's like a horse, and you've got to move with the horse to make the horse go well. Um, but she's only like a junior athlete under 17, 
Um, but I do think now data is introduced pretty early and people are trying to row to the data rather than row to the field. And I think the absolute best rowing is when the rhythm's working, the field's working, and it's like you're not putting anything down. But uh, like to Drew's point, I think it takes a while to get there and it takes a few cycles. And I think even from a personal perspective, I don't think I actually got it until I'd stopped rowing and started coaching. And through coaching, you learn more about rhythm and I think coaching can be a good teacher for yourself, you know. So um, I think at the top end, absolutely, when you're talking about angles and the GPS and when the boat's picking up and what you can do on the recovery and, um, you know, I'd implore people to watch uh, Drew's video on YouTube about can we make the boat go faster or does it make the boat go faster? Um, there's a lot of work that goes on through the drive, of course, but 50% of it's on the recovery and how you can look after the boat on the way th- on the recovery. And, you know, I spent time in the U.S. coaching on a U.S. team and you know, I felt like they're probably the strongest guys on the ERG in the world. But is that feel and touch as good as, say, New Zealand GB and Australia? And, you know, the medals at Olympics would suggest not. So imagine in the U.S. if there's some listeners here going, She's get Drew Ginn over there for some uh, some coaching. <laughs> Free plug for Drewy, but um, I, I love the US system and I, it was very good to me. But they're like there's examples, and even if you look at how the Romanians row, everyone rows differently. But I think the absolute best of the best have that feel and have that rhythm. And for some people, it's just innate. Like if you watch James Tompkins row, there's just so much natural ability coming out of this guy. The boat just went. Um, and when you put Drewy in that pair, the pair just goes. So I'm not sure if that answers your your question, AJ, but um, definitely rhythm and feel for me is the thing that is the difference between absolute elite and making up the numbers. And yeah. just just to build on that and extend on that, so you, you talk about where we all grew up, the three of us, um, at the club. We spent a lot of time at the club and, and one of your opening sort of remarks was, do you debate some of the differences in the sport? I think there was always conversation around the passion for rowing and the passion to work out how to row better. And what I always noticed at Merck's was there was a pride in rowing long. That was the first part. There was a pride in rowing well. And then there was a pride in having that real competitive spirit, you know, trying to win races, you know, so as, as an overarching thing. And so what you had is you had a whole lot of coaches. Marty Aiken was there. Paul McGann was there. Um, Noel Donaldson was there, Brian Richardson was there. These are all coaches in the late 80s into the 90s period. And so for Burge, Andy and myself, we're probably young athletes when we first step into the club and you're hearing all this dialogue around feel and the science, the art and the science, the numbers, targets, all that sort of stuff versus you know, just focus on it, close your eyes almost and, and trust it. Um, but to that point, I think where it's gone to now, the pendulum swung so far that when you, you watch the sport, and you hear some of the commentary about the sport, you sort of go, that's a bit sad because I think the commentating about the sport and the coaching about the sport has, has, has forgotten that, you know, use Harry Mann, for example. Harry Mann used to coach on getting the athletes to really feel the boat, feel each other. And, and he was almost imagining and feeling himself being in the boat as he's coaching. You can see he's coaching and getting into it. So, so I think when we came through Mercs, what I noticed was there was all those conversations taking place by coaches who aspired to be great coaches Loved also bringing the athletes into that conversation. So the notion of feel being balanced off against the, the numbers and the results and the science was really important. Noel Donaldson said it at one stage when um, Biomech came in, he found himself watching the screen, watching the screen, and, and then would forget to watch the crew. And, and yet Noel's got one of the best eyes ever, 
And so it's really easy. It's a bit like social media. It's really easy to get caught up in watching the screen, the numbers on the screen. You know? And it, as an athlete, you know, and we, we're all the same, you, know, you came through a period where there was no GPS in the boat. It was the coach saying what the 500-meter split was, if they gave you the 500-meter split. Um, but there was a reference to say, we want you to work a certain way, heart rate-wise, or, or feel for effort for heart rate, or feel for effort eventually when you're doing lactate testing. But, yeah, the pendulum certainly feels like it's, it's swung up a bit. But, yeah, the club environment, I think, really fostered that. But, yeah, and I think um, oh, if, if I sort of look at it, and, and I've had an interesting sort of um, couple of years because I, I sort of did a lot of coaching from 1995 up until about 2004 or something like that and then got married, had kids, blah, 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 and, and only really got back into coaching a couple of years ago. And um, and, and I really noticed that, that, that all of a sudden a lot of the young coaches were very data-driven and they were very tech-driven and all of the athletes coming through were sort of more worried about what split they were trying to sort of, you know, hit while they were training as opposed to, what they're feeling, you know, when they're when they're rowing, and so I, at the moment I'm sort of mostly coaching under twenty one year under twenty one boys at Mercantile, and you know we had a good session last year where I went and picked up Drew down near his apartment um, in Docklands in the Tinney. What when I had two of my eights out, and I think the first thing Drew said is right feet out, thumbs on top of handles, and uh, we're going to go for the next eight k's, and if there isn't a metre of clearance off the back of the boat at 20 strokes a minute, then you're not doing it right. And and we started talking about feel and we started talking about what are you feeling through your hands? What are you feeling through your feet? And, 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 and we stopped talking about the split. We watched the split and it was interesting when there was lots of clearance off the back, when it looked like it was all day rhythm, the boat was going faster. Um, but they, they, they stopped worrying about the data. And the moment they stopped worrying about the data, the boat was running faster, you know, it was more consistent, more uniform. And, and what we kept talking about is, is just all-day rhythm with those boys. But it is funny. They, you know, there's all this stuff around these days and they're so compelled to engage with all this data and all this tech that, it's, as Drew was saying, the pendulum's gone too far the, the you know, compared to what we were probably doing back back in the back in the mid to late nineties. Could I just ask a question? It, it, it's something that I sort of picked up from our last conversation with Drew. Um, you mentioned that you spent a lot of time training in other formats. So there was a lot of kayaking, a lot of windsurfing. We we've had another guy on the show. Um, Jez Moore, who's talked about the importance. I, I think he was like at a sub-international level, he was really talking about this, but the importance of training athleticism rather than just rather than just training the rowing stroke. Is there a real benefit to kind of bringing, making rowers do other sports? Yeah, and there's probably just not one benefit either. It's I think um, we probably came through the period where, yeah, and I'll use Noel as an example, um, and the, guy, the other guys can comment in terms of their experiences, um, but Noel and the four were advocating cross-training. Um, now, there'd been a period of time where they'd clearly rode more time in the boat. Um, the one I remember vividly was, you know, the bike ride on a, on, a, on a Thursday morning and the bike ride again on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday morning. Obviously, gym sessions were thrown in there, um, 
we'd go and play games of frisbee or touch rugby and all that sort of stuff. The frisbee um, was a big was a big one for you guys, I, I recall. Massive, yeah. And and the benefit of the frisbee to pick up on what you sort of coming around athleticism was the frisbee was about connecting with each other, plus also athleticism, like how agile you can move, how well you can move, when you can sort of accelerate and burst and then slow down and recover. Um, but it was also that sense of trust, which is moving into space that would send a signal to a teammate that you're going to be able to be there to intercept the frisbee. And so, you know, it was a really physical, athletic, um, dynamic sort of pursuit, but it also had this hovering disc, right? So, um, so big advocate for that. I think the one for me is what used to happen with cycling. You get someone falls off, next thing you know, someone, a uh, coach gets fearful about someone getting an injury. Um, mm. You play touch rugby or you play frisbee, someone rolls their ankle, oh, shit, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, but what they wouldn't keep, I think, mindful of, which is, yeah, you do a shitload of ergoing, sorry, my French, but you, you do a truckload of ergoing, before you know it, someone gets a rib issue or someone gets a lower back yeah. issue. So injuries were happening everywhere, but it almost became what I sense with some of the stuff that we've seen in Australia, small rowing, um, say this in the pair and the four, um, comment was be, you'd be, going along and as soon as it got a bit heavy the comment was athletic you know but just be athletic just think athletically don't try but just think athletically think more nimble more agile and as soon as you did all of a sudden you just relaxed ever so slightly your point about facial expressions is a classic one when you think athletic you sort of just you feel like there's just that moment of confidence to go oh this is this is a different move it's more elastic but you can relax the face and still go 100 percent yeah, and so there's there's that element of just feeling what the body does and where the body's going to have the least amount of tension to still produce the most amount of force. I think too, guys, like once you identify someone that can go through three cycles, <laughs> you want to try and keep them in the sport. And, yeah, you got to keep the volume up. I think there's different ways of getting volume. And, you know, I saw it in the US. I've seen it in Australia. You get some people that are incredibly talented but – lose the passion for the sport. And I think a lot of it is due to just rowing miles. And I think mixing it up mentally, physically, emotionally, um, there's benefits right up, right across the board. And I think some of the best coaches are actually the ones that challenge some of those, I think, long-held beliefs about just miles, miles, miles. Like clearly if you're 21, 22, 23, you've got to get a lot of miles into the system. But at 28 to 30, how do we get this person through to another cycle because they're a potential gold medalist? And I reckon that's the balance. And like coming into Sydney, and it's going to probably happen with Brisbane as well, um, you had older people hanging around and you had younger people pushing up and it just raised the standard across the board. And I'm hoping that will happen for Australian running with Brisbane as well. But I think one of the keys that we just lose sight of is encouraging really talented people to stay in the system. Mm. That That is something by all accounts the GB is – absolutely bombing out at, at the moment um I've, I've spoken to people who've left coaching in the gb junior system and gb start system just because they were so appalled at the number of people who they train up from 16 they get them to 18 they go to junior worlds and then they'd leave the sport they'd literally not pick up an oar again and mm -hmm. If you've got someone who's good enough to go to junior worlds, I hate the idea that they would they would get to the end of their career at 18. They'd just be like, yeah, I've done everything. That there's no there's no fascination with just like let's go to let's go and do Henley, let's go and do 
Canadian Henley. Let's you know, let let's see what we can do in head of the Charles. But there doesn't seem to be they don't seem to be inculcating the dream of rowing going forward. So you know, Olympics is obviously what you want from like a world champion junior rower. You want like right for eight years time, we want to see you on the podium. But just to think there are all these things, there are all these adventures that you can have in the boat. Um, and that doesn't seem to be something that we're really, really working on in GB at the moment. And I, and I think getting the balance right is a bit what Drew was talking about um, with certain personalities. Like there'll be some people, some athletes who are just like machines and they just love it and they'll just soak up 25-kilometre session after 25-kilometre session, week after week, month after month, and they'll just do it. But there are others who do like to go out and socialise they might like to play football in the winter or or, or, or whatever. And, and and you do have to provide a little bit of balance um, around those talented athletes who you want to keep in the system, keep them sort of interested and engaged and, and balanced because I don't think the, the absolute machine institution, institutionalised sort of mentality fits every single high-performance athlete. And, and so I think sort of tailoring, you know, the, the, the experience to, to, to them is probably pretty important as well. And, and especially with juniors, like I can imagine, like I've got a 15-year-old boy and he's really keen on rowing and I'm really sort of like, you know, we'll just take this step by step. So, um, yeah. Does he love his rowing birds because of his last race? He, he does. I think he was inspired by his doubles partner who, uh, you know, sort of took him down the course. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole yeah. other story to unpack. It's, we it's, should it's, get you guys to one of, the, one of the rural regattas in Australia. It's like, it's like Crocodile Dundee rowing, basically. It's, and, it's, um, it's, important, it's important to remember your last race because I think when, when we get to sit here and reflect on our last race, Andy had a great last race. Um, have you had a race since then, Andy? Uh, the next race, I think, was with Burgess' son, Drewy. But um, so the funny thing is, guys, some, Drew and I have some amazing been, races this season. <laughs> yeah, Drew and I were undefeated in a pair over 30 years, and we decided to get the band back together this year. And um, I thought I was literally going to die at the finish line, and I didn't want to let Drewy down, and we won by about half a canvas. And uh, it took me about a month to get over it. So that's why he's laughing so hard. <laughs> so before the race, he said to me, he said, I'm going to be chirping in your ear, motivating you, telling you all the stuff we need to do. And I'm sitting there going, geez, he sounds like he's up for this. <laughs> Not one stroke into the race does he go quiet. He doesn't speak again until the end of the race. And he's bright red at the end, like a big red watermelon. And, and he and he did and he didn't speak for about another another sort of day or two. It was it was and you, usually he's pretty good at talking. And uh it was, it was pretty, pretty quiet car trip home, I seem to recall. So yeah. yeah, I think the problem was I looked across at the guys. There was only two boats in the race, two guys, and uh, I looked across and thought, God, they look pretty young, and actually they look pretty fit. And then you saw them doing yeah. the warm-ups, like, oh, they can row. Yeah. So yeah. the pressure was on, wasn't it, Drew? It was well and truly on. It was a 1,000 metres of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Where was this race, guys? Ballarat, the uh, Melbourne Olympic Games venue. From 1956, okay. Ballarat. The course there has been extended ever so slightly. It's famous for having some challenging conditions, Windery. <clears throat> um, but Andy and I paddled up to the start, did a couple of little warm-up bits and thought, yeah, this is going to be okay. 
And uh, I was sitting in the strike seat, Andy, behind me, just reminiscing that it was 30 years apart. I'd rode with his daughter that morning um, and we had such a ball. It was such a great thing to do. And I think, you know, come back to the club experience. I think um, we used to go away during the domestic season for many, many years, right the way up to about 2008, really, where you'd go and do these country regattas when you're back home and doing preparation. So everything was serious. That was the high performance piece. But then we'd go to Windery Ballarat. We'd go to things like Dimboola years ago, some of these other country regattas, and you jump in all sorts of combinations sometimes and, uh, you know, call it pot hunting or whatever you like, but just the idea of just getting back to the basics of just enjoying rowing for what it is. And you'd race all sorts of distances and different formats as well. Like Ballarat is is, a, is an Olympic or was an Olympic course, you know, 2,000 metres. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned Dimboola, which was two lanes just and it, I think it's 642 metres or something like that. And then there's, uh, you know, there's the Rutherglen Regatta, which is, uh, I think, 550 metres on the Saturday and 300 metres on the on the Sunday. So so there's all these quite unusuals, and that's three lanes, I think. So so it's a very unusual <laughs> sort of uh, the, the country regatta uh, circuit is, is, is a bit of fun like that. I think too, guys. Like I'm, I'm like I'm like birds. I've been out of the system for twenty years because family and starting businesses and such. But I've noticed there's a lot less racing going on. It just seems to be a lot less yeah. fun. Um, there are guys in our club group that are really it's social rowing and and pot hunting. But we've got another club group that's like Henley level and winning at nationals club level, um, and did in my view did very few you know country gathers. So the idea of going away camping or having some fun. Um, it doesn't mean you play up or go out. It just means you get that community feel. And and because Mercantile is a pretty big club, I think it's generally well received when we go away to these country gathers and it's building that rowing community. And I think the reason I stayed with rowing and I started up in a very small club called Warrnambool um, down at the end of the Great Ocean Road, the reason I stayed in the sport is because we went away to these country gathers and we had fun. So I think there's elements where we could potentially learn and keep younger guys in the sport. And, you know, we're talking about attrition before, we have so many good schoolboys and schoolgirls coming through our system. The ones that actually even go on to row a club, it might be 1%. Yeah. So, so many good athletes, they they just train so hard up until their 18th birthday, 19th birthday, finish high school, finish secondary school, and are sort of lost to the sport. So, I don't think it's a GB thing either. And I think it happens in the States as well. At least in the States, you've got that, that college rowing thing, which keeps people going, which I think is awesome. Uh, but from a club perspective, how do you keep people enjoying the sport? And if they want to go that pathway to high performance and world champs, then you've got that pathway. But if you want to just go to, say, do GB Henley or Canadian Henley, some of our guys, Burge, you know, went to Canadian Henley and did really well. Um, you know, it looks like we'll be going ahead of the Charles um, this year, me and my daughter. And trying to make it fun, go and meet really interesting people, meet cool people. Like, you know, Drew, the people we've met, around the planet mm. that are just good people that we're still in contact with 30 years later, 40 years later. So that's the element that I'd like to try and bring back to rowing. Um, I'm not sure how that is in the GB because you just have so many people rowing, much more than Australia. But I think it could help with retention that you can row between 18 and 22 and you don't have to go to under 23s. You can do well at Henley or do head of the Charles and, and keep it interesting, build the motor, build that mm. VO2 um, and build the skills. It feels like there's a um, Lou and I are obviously you know in our in our forties coming up to our fifties, um, but it feels like since the advent of lottery funding, 
in the UK. And Lou and jump in if you feel that I'm I've gone off beam here. But it feels like rowing has become incredibly serious. So if you want to do it, it's almost like an all or nothing thing. It's almost like you have to commit to the idea of getting to Henley or the idea of going through the rounds at Henley or doing well at Nat Champs. Uh, and we have a lot of, right now, Oxford Brooks is, is really dominating as, as a high performance centre. But you you have the start centres that were that were dotted around the country to try and funnel people into the GB system, and Luna and I have talked about this with people like Jack uh, Beaumont and and Andy Hodge that we get people into the sport, but then when life when life hits and yep. you start your career after university or maybe you start a family, we we lose so many people. Mark Davis was talking about we we lose on average. 10 to 12,000 people a year from the sport in Britain. And it's, it's, it's kept up by people coming through uni and maybe rowing for a year or two after that. But I get the sense that the idea of just taking a boat out and having a bit of fun, you know, going to a, a talking tarn regatta or going to a, a Gloucester Bristol Ross, which Agecroft used to do over the bank holiday weekend. And you'd camp out and you'd, you know, you'd get some beers and you'd have a barbecue and then you'd, you, you'd mix the crew. So it wouldn't be, a crew that was going for Henley, you know, when it's our boat and it's incredibly serious and every session counts and come on guys, we've lost a little bit of that element of just going around the local regattas and just actually having fun. Loon, would you say that was a fair well, kind of cultural shift? I'd, I'd say that that is very much something that, that's happened. I, to a certain extent, I think it's part of the idea of like, if you're rowing for six minutes, you're an endurance athlete. You've got to put the time in. You've got to put the miles in. You've got to build a crew together. So it's very difficult to just like, oh, we'll just we'll just throw it at the wall and see what sticks after doing like a few weeks of hard training. But it, it's something we actually, uh, we I think we discussed on like the second or third podcast that we ever did. This idea that I had that after the year after every Olympics, the GB squad needs to be split up and sent to the regions in the UK. Yeah. We, li we literally need to take them out of Leander, out of Cavisham, out of Oxford Brooks and say, you're going to Runcorn, you're going to Liverpool, Victoria, you're going to Glasgow, you're going to Devil's Elbow and you're rowing there. You, you're following a training pro program, but you're rowing there in a pair and you're going to do what club, you're going to go to the races that the club president sends you to. And you're going to spend a year being a full-time club rower and just, yeah. you know, not only do they just like get the idea of rowing around corners and, and that's, that's a brilliant <laughs> thing when you've got these, these absolutely huge, I'm, I'm a big guy, but you know, you can run into these absolute monsters of 22 year old boys on the, yeah. on the, um, on the start program. And you're just like, oh shit, how am I going to beat this guy? And then you look at the, <laughs> he's got a bend in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've, I've got three legs on him because all he ever does yeah. is go up and down. Up and down, exactly. Um, and, 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 we're, and, we're and we're a bit the same sort of with the, you, you know, you're talking about the club rowing thing. And that's, that, that's actually how I got back into coaching in at the end of 2019 is um, we identified at Mercantile that, you know, everyone does this high performance stuff, but there's nothing for people who want to row twice a week and just race on the weekend, and and so um, we 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 kicked that off, and it was it was really successful. And wh where it started and was really sort of quite popular 
was actually a lot of the former high-performance athletes who might have been on the state team or Australian team who were transitioning back into civilian life who basically when you dropped out of the Australian team, it's probably the same in the GB, there's nothing for you. There's no sort of integration program or whatever. It's like it's either you're rowing high performance or you're not at all. Whereas these guys got to, you know, come down to the sheds, row twice a week, we'd have a barbecue and a few beers on Thursday night, and we'd, we'd race on Saturdays. And that might be in the city, in Melbourne, or at the country regattas. And and so that was, that was quite good. And then the second year of that, we got talking with the people at Rowing Victoria who you know, run the organisation of the sport. And what we said was that, you know, the biggest thing holding a lot of people back from staying in the sport who just want to have fun at club level is the 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 sort of requirement of racing over 2,000 metres. 2,000 metres is a bloody long way. You said six minutes before. I mean, that's that's proper, you know, sort of <laughs> proper. You, you have to train quite a lot to be able to take an eight over, over two Ks in six yeah. minutes. Um, and and that and, and if you can and you and you you've got the, <laughs> the ability to, to to put that training in, that's great. So Rowan Victoria came up with this, this this idea of club racing on Sundays. Every race, it didn't matter what boat class, single pair, double four, cox four. We even have a horrendous boat class called a cox quad. Now a quad is a fantastic boat, but imagine throwing a cox in it as well. Like you know, just slow the hot. But anyway. All the racing is now on the Sunday over a thousand meters, so you can actually race in up to four boat classes on a Sunday over a K, and and still do it with with a minimum amount of training, and and it's actually been quite successful, and it's helped retain a lot of people in the sport who otherwise would have gone. You know what? I'm not going to travel two hours to go and you know have one race, a heat and a final in a pair over two Ks because that's just too hard. Um, so the thousand meter race would be quite good. But just pick you up on one point. Um, there's no way that Drew and I could have done another race after that first and final in the pair. You said multiple <laughs> races. I reckon I'm good for one. Well, I, I reckon I reckon you're you're highly anaerobic. You see, Andy, and 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 that's where the thousand meters suited you. So, um, but right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, but but where I mean, Australia is is very similar to what you explained. Um, in terms of, you know, you guys had had the lottery system and we, we, we've got our national training centres now. So all, all of our high-end athletes have disappeared from our clubs and, and they're at the training centres. And our, you know, we, so the, so our sort of clubs have had to redefine themselves a little bit. And, and, and there's a guy called Jordan King who, will, you know, if, if, if you have us back again, he, he, he talks more than all of us combined. Um, and he's, but he's done a fantastic job and he's got about 40 young guys down there. Um, they're training twice a week and they're, you know, they're just loving it. And they would have otherwise been part of a big cohort that had rode at school for four years and then just dropped out and never been part of the sport again. But, you know, he's done a great job of keeping them in the sport and Rowan Victoria's, you know, done really well at, at, at having this thousand meter race format so that you can race in a single, a pair, and a, and a four or an eight all on the same day, the same regatta, in a heat and a final. So up to six races. No. It's a way two guys of keeping the school leavers around where you might be sitting on the fence after your year 12 and going, I'd like to row, but I can't, I can't do 14 sessions a week. I'm just mentally not ready for that. Club rowing 
presents that bridge where you're in the club system, you meet some, you know, good adults and good coaches, start learning about things like nutrition, building the VO2, um, but do it in a friendly club environment where if you want to actually the, the following season go on, you can. But we haven't been very good at getting school leavers into club land. Uh, and it's not just been a mercantile thing. I think it's been across the board. Mm. So I think anything we can do to encourage young people um, to take that step and even just row some club rowing, keep fit. And it's great pre-season for Aussie Rules football, which we play in Victoria. So you have these guys doing summer training, building up their base, and then they hit football season, have a great footy season, and then, well, geez, you can come back and row and, and see where it goes, where I think it's that all or nothing type mentality that is holding a lot of people back. It's that expectation, I go to ex-private school, your next step is to row for Victoria and then to row for Australia. Um, it's a little bit, I think, A or B, and yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, that, that thing you said about rowing and doing like, a season doing a term in the boats being really good preparation for field sports. Have you, I, I, I really, I, I work in a school. It, it's like, it's a big old independent school in the South of England. You know, abs, I mean, it, it's like Hogwarts for people who can't do magic. Um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't we, stud work down in one of those schools down there in the South? Where's that? Um, Ian Dryden. He's down at Panford School down in the south. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scud. Yeah. So Scud. He, was, he, he, he was the head coach at Mercantile for, for a few years uh, when, uh, when, we were, when we were, yeah. So he's a good good lad. Have you had him on the show? No, we yeah, should. Yeah, no. <laughs> let, me, you probably let, should. let me just make a note. Yeah, yeah get Scud and Burge on. That would be entertaining. Yeah. We'll get, get the uh, viewership up, I'd say. Well, maybe not. Well, Drew's already left. I, I, he's left in disgust. I'm not too sure why he's gone. Uh, uh, probably just signal problems or something. He, he, he was fiddling yeah. with his phone for a bit. Um, but he's no, in that, the bush too, guys. He's he's not in the city, so he may be struggling with reception there. What What's the best way that you can talk to a rugby coach about rowing? How, how do you convince them to let their big lads from the second row? Go and play in a boat for a term or two. You show you show them what they they will be presented with at the start of the winter season in terms of the physique of some of these you know athletes, and they're just like, yeah, we need a couple of them, um, and 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 they're not necessarily interested in their top end, you know, uh, guys, but the ones that are in the sort of bottom half of of the football team. Who will never go on to to probably be at the, but if you can build them up by putting them through rowing training through the summer, then that's a very attractive thing for for, for these football coaches, I think. Okay, but because at my school we've got an immensely sort of like charismatic professional, very very experienced head of rugby, and it's just like. Once, once he gets his hands on one of the rowers, that they're, they're not coming back. And, oh, and they're not coming back to rowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, and and it's just like, right? How how do we persuade them? Just like let let's get like this nice cross talk. He, he's not stealing them. He's just a great great sports coach. And and they yeah. come in there. He motivates them. You know, again, it, it, it's like it's like keeping that passion in there. And sometimes mm. you've got to let people go out a bit and. 
Um, I'm, I'm just really interested in like how you take athletes who aren't in the last two years before the Olympics and you give them enough variety to just keep them loving sport because we, we, we've spoken to people um, on the pod who have been, who have operated at the highest level and now would, would rather do anything other than get fit on a rowing machine. I mean, it's like, yeah. and, and the rowing machine is probably like the worst example, but I just think it's a little bit sad. The, yeah. the, well, I mean, what there Drew, isn't just what that Drew, love. Yeah, what Drew was talking about before was interesting. And and I think, you know, he and I have spoken about this a lot and, and he, he talked about cycling, like being on the road bike. And 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 what we've sort of discussed around, and, and you know, there's some risks around, but, you know, because we've all seen there have been some pretty high-profile people get injured or killed on road bikes, which is immensely sad. But it's, it's a pretty interesting training format because a you can it's very social um and you know when we're, when we're rowing in boats or when we're sitting on an ergo in a, in, in a room with 20 other people or doing an erg you can't talk like you you it's 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 you're just sitting there you're just smashing out the case whereas when you're on a road bike you're generally two abreast and you can have a bit of a chat you're not actually making eye contact so most of us in rowing are quite socially awkward so that actually puts us in a in a sort of you know relatively safe space and we can we can have a bit of a chat have a bit of fun have a coffee afterwards and that sort of thing and, and i think i've seen a lot of positivity uh, you, you know around using cycling as, as cross training and you can cruise along and sort of do some k's or you can also take yourself to that really horrible place physically on a bike similar to to what you can rowing and so the the, the sports i think as a cross training tool is actually quite, you know, it's it's quite good. So, example, Lou, like, has have you seen examples the other way where you have an incredibly charismatic rowing coach being able to draw people in? Because I think um, there's definitely coaches out there that just have a magnetic um, personality, and and I think a lot of it is driven by their athlete welfare perspective and. Those coaches that genuinely care for the outcome of the athlete versus the results on the water, you know, those those coaches are few and far between, but there are examples. And the ability to recruit them to a national system where you've got, yeah, they'll get a good outcome because they're in the system, but they're going to be better humans after being under the tutelage of this coach. Have you seen much of that? Yeah, all the time. Literally every single brain coach I've ever worked with. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I'm... I, I, I got I got sort of like snapped back at, on social media for quoting Kath Granger for saying that um, psychopathic tendencies are a very useful tool for a rowing coach, and I've I've I've, I've, I've kind of I've, I've seen that too many times in my rowing career. I I see entirely what you mean that that does so if. If you kind of look uh, at, the, at the construct trust, the guy I was talking about, one of the things that I was so impressed by him the first first time I kind of worked out is that he would always get the guys on his squad who were injured to come down on match days and training days to the to just not even like be on the sidelines, but just be in the p- pavilion 
and have a coffee, have a cake, because he wanted to say, even if you're injured, you're still part of the squad. We still want you here. We still value the fact that you're watching us train and we're waiting for you to come back on. Um, I I think that's actually much harder to do when you're on a lake because, you know, you've got the, you've got the guys like right out the other end of the lake. You don't necessarily have that same contact. You can put people, you can put people in a, a Tim fish, but if, if they've got like a hacking cough or they got a sore back, spending an hour and a half in, in a tinny is, is not like necessarily the best thing for them in Feb, in February in the UK. Um, so I, I think building that team spirit is a little bit harder, but yes, I mean, I absolutely agree. Um, and it's actually, if you, if you look at one of the, uh, down at my school in, in the boathouse, they've got, they've got like some motivational posters up. And one of the ones is in order to be a better writer, you've actually got to become a better person first. I, I, I don't know if that's the right way around. I, I think training to be a better rower has a really big impression on making you a better person. You get that dedication. You get that idea of working for others. Uh, I yeah. think the reason I asked the question, Lou, is that um, I've been fortunate to actually be part of a a visiting sort of uh, coach and athlete system in, uh, with Gippsland Grammar, and and Burge knows who I'm talking about. He's a Nick, his name's Nick Bartlett, and he's an English yeah. guy, and um, his athlete care, um, one, he's a great technical coach and uh, he went to Junior Worlds last year and he had a, a crew at um, Henley uh, in a in the quad, the junior quad. Um, but his approach to athlete well-being and how motivating he is by being just a very decent human, um, right. he's got a very small school punching above its weight at a national level. So, like, there's examples out there, I think. And he's got a great personality um, and he's – They've got more kids in boats. Like they just can't fit all the kids in. And mm. when you see that, it's just so powerful because it's the best part of our sport. Yeah. 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 And we, I think it comes, just, comes down to that bit around respect. And, um, you know, at, at Mercantile we talk about, you know, you, you've got to respect yourself. You've got to respect everyone else in the club, your crew, your crewmates, and, 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 and the whole respect piece is, but it's funny, uh, you know, respecting yourself and, and how you, how you roll and how you present is, and how you interact with everyone is, is really important. We had, um, I don't know if you know him, but we had Axel Dickinson on from the, uh, he was the, uh, in the New Zealand system and he came over to Hinksey. And I think it was the year before last Hinksey is a, is a small, um school in oxfordshire and i'm pretty sure it's in the state sector so it's not a private school it doesn't have a long history of rowing like an eton or a st paul's uh, or an abingdon and they got through to the final of their category in the uh, at, at henley with schoolboys and the, and um i in, think in, in the, the most, adult racing the, in, yeah. in the club racing it, it, it was an awesome story it's just like one of the it was one of the best stories that come out of henley in years yeah, and they they actually he was very very big upon um, trying to foster that sense of community and club, getting the parents involved, getting the athletes involved, and they did such a good job. Uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Loon, but some of his his junior athletes um, were getting offers of of scholarships to very good private schools, 
um, if they went and rode for them and also offers of um, university scholarships in America. And they actually turned the scholarships down because they wanted to row with their mates for Hinksy, which I think is a sign of, of a pretty healthy culture going on. And I'm just wondering if in Britain, because of the success that we've had, because of the success of the squad, and you know, none of us want to take that away, although you two guys might want to take that away, you know, in the next Olympic cycle. Um, there's almost a sense of this is what you have to do to be successful. And we've had a couple of comments. Um, I'm not going to mention any names that often the people that we see standing on the podiums are not necessarily the ones who were shaped by the GB approach to rowing, but they're the ones who survived it. So we've heard the stories about athletes who've had to have surgeries, athletes who've had to retire because of um, injuries that they've they've sustained during the squad. And that that kind of cultural thing of this is what you have to do to be successful. I don't know if you guys have read Kath Bishop's book, The Long Win, with with regards to reframing how we see winning. It's not about the gold medal. Eric Murray said, look, if all you're training for is the gold medal, you're going to be really disappointed because it's going to take you eight years to get there. And if you don't enjoy the eight years of the journey, it takes three seconds for them to hang the, the medal around your neck. So you've got to have a different perspective upon why are you doing it? What are you doing it for? And and what are you actually getting out of it? Because the medal at the end is not necessarily going to make up for that. And I'm not asking you to dig on the, the British culture, but Loon and I talked about this when we talked to Drew the first time. There's a, there was seemed to be a flexibility of mindset and an openness to experience, both good and bad, and an openness to growth, whereas in Britain, we've had a, this is what works. These are the steps that work. You know, the um, Jesmo talked about, we've completely maxed out the effort lever in Britain. You know, it's it's almost unthinkable to see how you would make top end squad athletes train any harder. And, you know, you can't fit any more miles in, you can't fit any more Ks in. Jez was very big on, look, we have to look at the psychology of the individual. We have to look at... Um, what Drew was talking about in, in, in terms of actually training specifically for the individual, um, tailoring training programs around individuals rather than, than the vast group and trying to get as many through the system as possible. And the technical approach, Drew talked about taking a hacksaw to his boat to try and find where is the boat sitting the best when we were at, at race pace. Do you think there's there's a cultural issue going on there with this kind of all or nothing idea? It has to be all or nothing when it, when it can. If you're 16 years old, you should be having fun with it. You shouldn't be under pressure to go, right, well, you know, by the time I'm 24, I need to have ticked X, X, Y, and Z in terms of boxes, and I need to have these medals, and I need to be on this pathway. That's going to turn more people off than it turns on for the sport. Because we, we, we've all been in a boat. It's the closest you can get to flying without growing wings. It's a fantastic <laughs> feeling. So why do you want to make it such a painful experience? Well, well, do a thought experiment too. So sorry for dropping off the call before. I'm back. My phone's getting charged. Um, what you've just described, I've had a thought experiment, which I've been playing around with myself for a bit, which is what if there was only one country that rode with all the athletes on the planet being forced into that one program? That would be the most boring sport in the world, mm. right? And so the other end of the spectrum is to have just one coach, one athlete, but 
all the way across the population, right? So, and that would have so much diversity and so much, I think, innovation that'd be going on, but maybe there's not enough connection, right? So somewhere in between there is the club, the community, the Institute of Sport kind of model centralizing. But I think what you're describing now is it's being pushed down a, a side, which is about, this is the way to do it. And this is almost the only way to do it. Mm. And, and so the love of the sport gets squeezed out of it. Um, the mindset of the athlete and the coach, which is there's a process and a recipe. And as long as we follow that, that we get the results, but that becomes really dull and boring, I think, because then innovation in the sport, creativity in the sport, a coach over there with just six athletes, like Andy just described with Gippsland grammar, that coach over there does something different in terms of empathy, engagement, care, plus also technical coaching. You get this little pop of excitement. You go, wow, that's really cool. Now, if you pulled them all into another one program and did it all the one way, some of those kids don't make it through. That coach certainly doesn't get to have the experience. And I think this is what we've come to experience in the sport is you love it because you've your diverse experiences. You know, and I remember hearing stories where Peter Antony and Paul Reedy used to sit at Melbourne University and cut up their blades, right? So you talk about taking a hacksaw to a boat like I did with Duncan Free, but they cut and shaped their blades to try different things. So that's a curiosity that comes when you're in a small environment where two two athletes can explore and experiment with um, a coach. I was able to do that with Duncan. Now, if that was a part of the national system being all squatted in one location, I probably wouldn't have been given the autonomy to do that with the boat. Pants wouldn't have done the same thing with his oars. Um, Nick Bartlett wouldn't be taking so much care and empathy. All these things don't happen because oh, that's how the head coach does it. That's how the next coach does it. That's how the squad does it. That's how they did it last year. And then it just becomes, I reckon, a really mundane recipe. And if our sport wants to become obsolete, we're certainly heading down the, the right path because less innovation is happening in the sport now than ever before. Technology is exciting, but I'm not seeing any technical innovation. Yeah, And I think you know, as coaches here, like, you love the sport. I want to see the Dick Fosby. Where's the next Dick Fosby going to happen in rowing, right? Where, where's the next rower who does something just genius-like with their coach that you sit there and go, how did they do that, right? And, and then see a boat jump forward five or six seconds where you just marvel at it and go, that's just extraordinary. And so I think, yeah, if it's just all one model and everyone just copies the same thing, then it just becomes very homogenous and, and I think really dull. Um, I love the idea that there's a 16-year-old kid out there somewhere who's a genius and yet we don't know it, but if they can't get into the system and the system controls everything, then we miss out on that genius. And we miss out on the coaching genius that might be there who's 23 years of age coaching at a local school or club who also gets the chance to have a bit of autonomy about what they do rather than just following the plan, the plan that's been sent to them. So for me, it's like the human spirit. You want to let it run wild, I would have thought. Mm. Yeah. And I think having, having drew that collaboration between the coach and the athlete or athletes is really important. And, and sort of being a, an observer of, of how, you know, Drew's career went through from, from school um, through the, the, the different Olympic game cycles is, you know, you rode with different pair partners or you rode in different crew boats. And, and the way you guys rode in those, you know, it was different. And there was clearly, you know, different collaboration with you and Dunks and Cobber or, you know, the guys in the four with Noel, et cetera. And, and you know, yes, we had this model, but as you as you saying before um if if we just go down this path of this homogenous beige sort of model that everyone has to then you know that's just training it's not coaching and it's not collaboration with your athletes and 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 whatever so i think what, what what's really important you know i think you were talking aj before about 
You know, there's only so much volume of training an athlete can do. The, the important part is the collaboration with the coach and the athlete about what we can do a little bit different. And I think this is where Drew gets very excited and exciting and posts things, you know, on social media and all these different ideas of, of, of what, you know, can be done out there because it does need to be mixed up a little bit. And I think, you know, coaches and, and administrators and whatnot do probably need to be shaken up a little bit and 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 sort of given a little bit of autonomy to, to, to collaborate a bit more with the athletes and, and listen to what they want to do. Like I'm, I'm not a very, very technical coach, but I tend to put it back onto the athlete and talk about what they think. What do you want to do? What do you, you know, we were talking about feel earlier. And the more you can get the athlete to talk, particularly the young ones, because they really don't, they don't want to say anything. The more you can get them to talk, the more that they can understand and what they're, what the sensation is they're getting through the boat, through the yaw, you know, in the water, that sort of thing. Oh, and Burge, what you've described there for us all, like, I think that's the conversation with an athlete, isn't it, where the athlete gets in touch more internally with what they're mm. feeling, noticing and becoming aware of. Um, Noel Donaldson was, I think, great at this. People don't really realise one of his great skills was sitting down with many athletes one-on-one and finding out about what really motivated them. And so not only that, finding out what was concerning them on and off the water, finding out what was aspiring to them. And so there's these conversations that you sort of describe in the relationship. But the thing for me is it goes from being an external thing that you're trying to validate yourself on to being a very internal guide. And, And when you get an athlete who becomes internally guided and internally motivated, the, the volume that we talk about, imagine someone who then you know, becomes motivated, says to Burge, well, I want to go and do this. And it's like, no one's ever done that before. Like, that's that's ridiculous. Awesome. Let's go and do it. Let's see what we can do. And I think, you know, go back 60, 70, 80, 100 years in rowing, coaches were exploring stuff just because it seemed like a good idea to try. You know, and, and athletes would explore stuff because it seemed like a good idea to try. So it's in that relationship piece that you trust each other to become curious and then try things different. But I think what Burge is describing, if you can get an athlete to go from externally identified and driven by you know, external factors to then becoming much more in tune themselves, they'll manage themselves better in the boat. They'll be actually more motivated to actually make certain changes that feel for the boat, feel for their crewmates, that'll get a better outcome. Can I step in there too, guys? Cause I think that gets down to trust. And if you trust the coach, you can have those conversations, but you have these coaches that are ladder climbers and, and, you know, do they actually have the athletes, you know, best interests at heart? And, you know, I think this is around the world. This is not Australia or GB. Those coaches, and you talk about Noel, Drury, like there was ultimate trust between the four and Noel and you could explore those themes quite safely and you could challenge each other and you could have some really robust discussions like I used to see at the gym sometimes. Like, <laughs> but it was a trusted environment and I think, the best coaches are the ones where the athletes trust 100%. And there's that to and fro between the athlete and the coach. Can I just leap in, Lou? And I'm sure, I'm sure yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you'd like to as well. Um, I just want to explore the ideas you've just come out with, guys, because, okay, I'm going to use an analogy, but stick with me and, and it, it should come good. I'm thinking about this idea of the confidence to actually fail. Now, if you look at, I, um, I play the guitar. Not amazingly well, but I, I play the guitar. And what I guys, guys, can I just say one thing? He's lying. He's literally one of the best guitarists you'll meet in five years. <laughs> Honest to God, he is incredible. 
Busted. That's very kind of you to say. I sort of, I sort of play the guitar. I sort of play the guitar. Yeah. Okay. Like Drew sort of rose. I've seen Drew row before and he can row. Just to right, clarify. He can row. We were, we yeah, were wondering whether he could or not. We were wondering whether he could or not. That's very kind of you to say, Luna. I've, I've got a lot to learn still. But, um, yeah, so there's no humble bragging going on. It's just... If you listen to guitar-based music now, what you tend to find is you hear a lot of music that sounds like it was made on a guitar. And what I mean by that is um, there's a pathway. So you pick up the instrument, you learn a few chords, you might learn some songs by some bands that you know, you might learn a lead break here, you might learn a lick there. And what you do is when you start to experiment with music is you start to put the patterns together in a way that you know adds up to guitar-based music. So rather than making music, what you're doing is you're moving patterns around. But the reality is that you pick up the instrument because you hear an Eddie Van Halen, a Jimi Hendrix, uh, uh, you hear someone who completely blows your mind, but it feels like they are speaking to you directly. And what you're responding to is you're responding to their own voice you're, that they've developed on the instrument. And what you're, what you want to do is you want to make that sound. You want to, you want to make the sound that is exciting you so much, but rather than, than pick up on the lesson that they're giving you, which is to find your own voice, which takes time and it takes failing and it takes not necessarily sounding like everyone else. You learn a few songs and you learn a few licks and you put them together and you call it music. And I'm wondering if in rowing, we kind of have that mentality a bit as well, which is we know what steps we have to take to end up as rowers and it's training to this amount of volume and it's this sort of technical work and it's this is what we do at the catch and this is what we do at the finish. And that adds up to being a rower, but it doesn't necessarily add up to being our own rower in the same way that that learning a Chuck Berry lick and a, and a blues doesn't necessarily mean that we found our own voice on the instrument. Does that analogy resonate with, with you guys or does that make any sense at all? Or am I just talking over caffeinated nonsense? <laughs> I'd say hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. And I think just to sort of speak to it, I think uh, there's a danger with everyone doing whatever it is that they find. Um, in terms of a movement, because then you're not necessarily harmonising as a crew. And I think this is the, the the intellectual challenge for us as athletes and coaches. Having an athlete move the same as someone else, but connecting with it in a way that's unique to them, mm-hmm. I think can be trusted. You know? And so having an athlete sort of describe something about their feet that another athlete goes, I hadn't even thought about that. And yet they're both trying to push their legs. They're both trying to swing open on the handle. They're both trying to stay tall, let the boat go and time it together. And yet one athlete's thinking and noticing certain things and other athletes thinking and noticing completely different things. So I love what you just said that about the guitar. And, and I didn't quite know that in terms of the patterning piece, but that reminded me so much of when we saw the Canadian eight with Mike Spracklin, you know, doing that movement that was so exaggerated. And the way the story got told that I heard at the conference was when Spracco was asked, why are you getting the lay so far back in the boat? He was like, I'm not, I'm not getting them lay so far back in the boat. I'm just getting them to hold on for as long as possible. And so the intent of holding on was interpreted by the athletes in such a way that it had this body position. But then every country that then decided to duplicate that because they thought that was the recipes for success, copied the movement and didn't understand the intent. So 
finding your voice in the, in the boat. I love that that concept. It's a bit like let it breathe, like let 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 the rowing stroke, let the boat breathe. That find that connection between each other. James, yeah, and I actually talk about this with Andy and I. Like the time we rowed together in '93. Things were said on the water, but very little was said on the water. What was really happening was a connection to, to each other and then a real sense of letting the boat have the rhythm, right, and, and rowing in a such a way that over 2,000 metres it had an efficiency to it. So Andy, as a slightly more senior athlete to me, had real confidence to tell a younger athlete, you know, trust it, you know, trust it, trust the feel, trust the rhythm, you know, feel that, that's it, now we've got it, row better, let's do it better. You know? And so it was this expansion of a sensation and, and this is what tuned me into it was you don't worry about them what it looks like, which is frustrating and challenging to a coach who's asking you to make it look like something. Mm-hmm. You're trusting the feel and the feel is immediate. Like the feel is not one second delay, two seconds delay. It's not waiting to the end of the race race for the result. The feel is immediately there. You can sink into a feel and you find that and you can come back to it day in, day out. And so I think you're right. I think finding – your voice, finding your feel, your rhythm. Um, for me, it's that real grassroot base level of what it is to be on a craft, on a, on a surface that's moving around potentially um, and combining with whoever else is in the boat with that bit of equipment. There's a kinetic and energetic sort of link up between it all. You know? And so as soon as you take it away from that to say, I want you to sit this tall on the boat and I want you to be in this position at the front, this position at the back, you now get me to externalize. And I've seen that a lot with athletes. I think we all have where you ask an athlete to do something and then you find yourself going, oh, actually, that's made it worse. I've asked them to do something that they're now conceptually putting in place as a template, but they've lost the feeling and connection to what is that's going to create that position and outcome, right? And so I think the best coaches explore that with athletes and the best athletes are open to the idea of exploring it with the coach. Now, that requires conversation off the water as well as it does sessions on the water. And so some of these training programs these days, I think, they're taken up with everything's planned and prepared out, but some of those dialogues and conversations don't get had. So as a result, your music analogy, you don't get to really settle into it and feel for it, but you also don't then talk about it and then reinforces, oh, I found something special here that's unique to me, but also you found something that's unique to you and that's how we play together. Like that's that's the art of it all, I think. Yeah. I think too, guys, like sometimes we get arrogant and think there's only one way to row a boat and it's got to be a certain way. And I've listened uh, a little bit to the Kiwi Pair guys. I know Drewy knows these guys and they were coached by Noel. Yet they did things a little bit differently, similar to when Drew was rowing the pair. Um, was it exactly, you know, the national system? Maybe not, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding with the results. So I think you've got to be humble enough and look around the world and say there's a lot of different ways to row the boat. At the end of the day, it's who gets to the finish line in the fastest time. So it doesn't need to be formulaic. I think different athletes have different ways of moving. Like Michael McKay rode very differently to James Tompkins, but they made it work in a four. Hmm. Um, same with Andrew Cooper, you know, two athletes that weren't as tall as Nick Green and James, but they made it work incredibly well in a Cox's four. So I think, you know, the important thing, if there was a takeaway, it's not one size fits all with this sport, um, with athletes into systems and even into different boats. you got to make sure that the boat's going fast because of what the athletes are doing together. And, you know, I think we kicked off this pod with, it's about that feel. And, you know, I think with Drew and I, we were lucky because Drew hadn't done much in the pair and we jumped in and the first lap was a bit wriggly, but I'm very much a field type coach. And after a couple of laps, like probably six Ks, it was going okay. And Drew, I, I don't even know if he'd done much in the pair, but was confident enough to go, if, if we can do this in training, we should be a bit of a shot to win this race in two weeks time. 
I mean, what what I've got written down here that's sort of like just like I just like scribble something down was like individualization and experimentation. Yeah. I mean, Berg, do you want to sort of jump in? I mean, is, is, is that is that where you actually have to go to take the next step? It's not just like you do this many miles at this stroke rate. You, you find what works for the athlete. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what, what uh, Andy and Drew just explained before, you know, around feel is really important. But what, what I, and, and I completely agree with it, but what I see with young 18, 19 year old boys who have just come out of school, joining club, going into the high performance stream, is they still don't understand what that feel is and they're very data driven. They keep talking about 123 splits at you know this sort of rating and, and all this sort of data. And one of the things that I first noticed when I got back into coaching two or three years ago, particularly with the boys, is you know, at the catch, at the start of the drive, they want to be all locked up in the shoulders and arms. And 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 so you're never going to get that sense of feel if if you're all top heavy and locked up, you know, through your shoulders and through your arms. And and so what we try and do with them, with with, with these younger athletes in, in that under 21, under 19 sort of level, is get them to talk about like what is it feeling like out there? Like, do you feel like you're hanging with your shoulders in front of your hips during the drive? You know, do you do do you feel the the, the pressure? you know, in your fingers, you know, during the arm draw, or are you just dumping it down into into your lap and letting it go too early? So I think getting them to talk about what they're feeling, because when you say to them, oh, how is it going? Oh, yeah, good. Um, so so what was good about it? Oh, yeah, it was it was it was just good, you know, but but you you've got to really try and help them to unpack what the sensation of feel is for them and not sort of try and um, like tell them what it feels like, but get them to, to sort of unpack it for you because that's part of their learning and part of their education in the sport, I think, and, and part of their progression and, and how they'll, you know, Andy said before, you know, our business is making boats go fast. And when these young people can start to unpack and learn what feel is, then they'll, then they'll be able to take it to the next level beyond just training hard and working hard. And just to add to that, so there's a piece for me, which is um, Sam Lacombe was a New Zealand coach that came out to Australia, coached in Tassie for a number of years, a lightweight four between, I think, a 98 period in Australia through to sort of 2004. So Sam used to do a thing on the, on the water in Tassie. They'd go up to Barrington, have the little squad there, small little squad, some of the best rowers in the world, right? in that squad would be some kids straight out of school, some club rowers, and then the internationals like Simon Burgess and eventually Scotty Brennan. So this is the interesting part. Scotty used to tell a story of being given 50 strokes where Sam would say, you've got 50 strokes, see how far you can go. Hmm. And at the end of the 50 strokes, you've got four, five, six single scholars who have all gone different distances. And then Sam would say, now I just want you to reflect on what you thought worked for you, what you thought didn't work for you. Um, some of the kids would talk to each other, some of the athletes would talk to each other and joke about, I'm a boat length ahead of you, or I lost a boat length there, or whatever it might be. So the point about the conversation is sometimes you don't need to over-intellectualise it, but there does need to just be that 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 enjoyment for 
oh, this worked, that didn't work, right? And so curiosity, you've said there about experimentation, curiosity to try something and it not work is okay. Curiosity to try something and go, wow, yeah, I got further out from the boys than I ever have before, but what I did was this. I tried something that I'm now aware of because of what the athletes said to me beforehand. In in their one they tried, I'd now tried something like that and that's now gone to a whole new level. So curiosity to find a way to move well, find a way to move better. Curiosity, like to even manage fatigue. So Scotty described like some of the training sessions they do down there would just be 20Ks of rowing, right? So they're young kids, 16, 17 years of age. So there was volume in, involved. But it was that whole thing that Sam would sort of say, hey, guys, I can't solve this for you. When you're out there doing it, you've got to work out how to manage yourself. What is it to manage yourself? So he was having mature conversations with teenage athletes and to Burge's point, not telling you how to feel, but rather what did you notice? What worked for you? What got you through the session? Um, what kept you up with the seniors? And so there's a conversation that probably sometimes doesn't happen when we go purely data, purely numbers, and purely a process that has no wriggle room. Um, but some of those examples of the way coaches have done it, and Burge's example there before with the clubbies, was getting them on the water, getting them to just reconnect with things they probably haven't really thought about for a long time or haven't thought about, because the coaches they're having come through school aren't appreciating that it's not about the number. The number comes as a consequence of the great movement, the great activity, the great connection together. Yeah. You do all these things, that produces the number, not do the number, focus on the number, and 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 these things will be sort of made sense of. Um, and there's a neurological piece thing for me too is just spending time in the boat, enjoying moving the boat around in different directions, different ways, irrespective of it being perfect. And neurologically, you actually connect up to the oar handles better. Neurologically, connect to your foot plate better. You know? And so if you're just doing the volume and doing the case, you don't give a chance for that pathway connection to be made either. Yeah. I, I, I call it the welcome to the human race moment where, you know, all, all of a sudden <laughs> the boat's going really fast and it and it doesn't feel hard, it doesn't feel heavy. You've got so much time and then you look down at, at, at the data and it's like, wow, we're going fast. And, 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 and you know, these 19-year-olds look up and go, so it doesn't need to feel like it's really locked up and loaded and I'm working really hard and I'm, no, no, no. It's, uh, you know, that's the welcome to the human race moment. And um, and it reminds me too of you know there's a great band Big Audio Dynamite, rhythm and melody, and that's that's what it's all about. That's that's that part when you you know you finally reach it where you know you've got rhythm and melody, you're just smashing it. You've got huge clearance, and it feels easy. And that's sort of coming back to what we were talking about. I think pretty much at the start of start of the session. I th think so. I was going to ask a further question, but you've kind of almost answered it. And and uh, you know I. This isn't an analogy, but this is uh, this is actually a reality. So, if you put paper and paints in front of a four-year-old child, they will naturally just instantly start making, creating, experimenting, playing. If yep. you go to eight years old, seventy to eighty percent of them will naturally still start doing it. By the time you get to twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen unless they're being told, right, we're now going to paint something, the vast majority will wait to be told what to do. And the question that I was going to ask that you've kind of answered is, how do we inculcate or how do we promote that curiosity and that almost the permission to fail? Because there is so much pressure on image from social media. We have 
to look a certain way. We have to have a certain lifestyle. We have to do certain things. There's so much pressure on success. We have to get certain exam results because we need to go to a good university and we need to go on to here. Whereas the reality is there are loads of different pathways through life. And most of us will hop from pathway to pathway as we go. And it's the same in, in sport. We are rowers. We are learning to row. We are going to row. And this is how we do it. And you're a shy, you're you're a 12 year old who's just gone down for your first junior session. And you love the way that the water feels on the end of your oar and you can feel it in your hands, but you're too shy to talk about it. How do we promote that? It's okay to have a conversation. It's okay to debate things robustly. It's okay to have your own opinion. You don't have to believe the same things as everyone else. It's okay to retain that four-year-old curiosity of, if I do this in the boat, but then I put my shoulder here, or if, if my hands are here, you know, how do we... You've kind of answered it, but do you have any further thoughts on, on it's almost like we coach the curiosity out of them and, and out of ourselves, and then we have to coach it back in. Does it's, that make any sense? Understanding each athlete as an individual, particularly in a crew boat, because you tend to have, you know, if I, if I look at the, 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 the crews that I'm coaching at the moment, they're generally eights. You've got, you know, a couple of alpha males in there who are very sure of themselves and very sort of, um, you know, sure of what's going on. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a couple of very introverted people who virtually say nothing and then a, a bit in between. And I think as a coach, whilst it's really important, all the technical stuff that we talk about out on the water and whatnot is, you know, uh, pre-session, during the session and post-session, giving all those different personalities the confidence and trust to unpack what, what we've been talking about and what they have analysed um, we've been doing out there is really important. And that could be with the alpha male types, like just shutting them down a little bit and telling them to be quiet whilst, you know, this young fella down the other end who might be a bit more introverted but has probably got more to add, um, giving that person the confidence and the trust to speak up and to, and to you know, really dissect what, what's going on because... When when those conversations start happening, that's when huge amounts of learning learning happens. I think out there, particularly with and and my experience is just with these under twenty one year old boys. Um, but yeah, that that that's where it really starts to to, to happen. And I might chip in here, guys, and just suggest that it's cultural because um, you know I've got a corporate job. Uh, we do corporate advisory to mid market. And our best clients are the ones that challenge conventional wisdom. They're the ones coming up with new technology or new ways of doing things and creating competitive advantage. And I think at Mercantile, we're really lucky to have guys like Noel Donaldson there because it was a safe place to really challenge things. Like I think the awesome foursome went faster because Noel coached them, but Noel allowed them to play. Like it was a very, you know, playful environment. Like, and the guys are extremely serious when they're on the water, but the culture there at the time in the club and with Noel coaching was the ability to get the paint out and make a mess. And that can make the boat go faster. And, you know, there's some fantastic stories about when they were trialing, you know, 92 with the Macons versus the Cleavers and how much went into just that analysis. But at the end of the day, it was still fun. And to me, the athletes that stay in it are the ones that are smiling and the ones that are enjoying the work and happy to go day in, day out. Um, when you see the athletes that aren't very happy, Generally, it's either coaching or system related. Um, it could be in their personal life as well. But if you've got a structure where people are happy to come to work, no matter where it is, it could be corporate, it could be rowing, it could be school, 
you're generally going to get better outcomes. And I think we were lucky to be in that environment through with Noel that it was a fun place to be. It was extremely serious and people were world champions, Olympic champions, but it was fun too. Have the right balance. Yeah, balance is right. And I think trust, you, you, we've used that word a few times. I think I got the sense with people like Noel, I say Marty Aiken again, Brian Richardson, um, Paul McGann, who were all the coaches through the club at the time. There was an element that they believed that they could help you get better. They didn't know how they were specifically going to help you get better, but they believed that if they got an understanding of you, if they understood a little bit about what made you tick, they knew enough about rowing. So that wasn't the bit. It was about understanding you. And so there was a trust in, I reckon there's something in you. Yeah. And and I saw Noel give as much time to James Tompkins as he would to a kid straight out of school. Mm. Um, and all those coaches at the time too were all almost always coaching at school as well as coaching at club. And a lot of them had teaching backgrounds and it was a combination of having great understanding about pedagogy and curriculum and education and, but also that real interest in just helping an individual develop. So it was irrespective of if someone sort of said, you've got talent, so therefore I'll put energy into you. It was, I love the fact that you're down here. I want to understand what makes you tick and what you want out of this. I know how to row. I'll, I'll teach you that bit. But if I understand what makes you tick, I'll, I'll bring that together and give you confidence in yourself. And so the way I think of that is, as an athlete, looking back on my time and the time I've had with a lot of these great people is, I learned how to walk without anyone really teaching me. I learned how to largely speak by just being in a family who was speaking. And so learning how to write was a different skill that required some education and some complexity in terms of managing it, learning how to play an instrument might have been at that as well. But I think some of these great coaches, I think they'd see something in you that you wouldn't necessarily see and notice it in yourself. They wouldn't know how to get it out of you, but they care enough to say, I'm going to spend time with you um, as you and trust that if you find what it is to be you and to be motivated and all this sort of stuff, the learning to rowing, rowing bit is actually easy. Yeah, rowing's yeah. really uncomplicated as we know. Yeah, you stick a blade in the water, push your legs, swing your body, take it out of the water and you keep going, repeat it over and over again. Um, but those who want to sort of make it out to be much, much harder than that and that you have to do something super special and superhuman, they sort of take away the, the, the power from you to realise that you've got something special in you. You've already done these amazing things on the planet. I see something special in you. If you want this, I'm here to help you. Yeah, and and that whole trust, relationship building, um, safe environment. Andy mentioned that. Like Merckx was highly competitive. I loved the competition. Like there was no doubt. You went on the water. There was a hierarchy and a pecking order. That was really clear. But you get off the water. People were willing to share. People were willing to have stories and all sorts of stuff. And and support each other. You could be in the gym, and someone who you know you've got a race on the weekend wouldn't walk through the gym and alienate you and brush you off and all sorts of stuff that actually engage with you and see how you're lifting or see what you're doing or so there was this collegiate sort of feel that was just natural that um for me i think the coaches fostered that really well um great competition great trust building um and just people exploring i think um you know the amount of times he went on the water i saw mike mckay try so many different things technically over his career and and no coach one could have told him not to do that wouldn't have worked um <laughs> but he was exploring all the time. Like, and you, you look at Mike and you even look at James, how they rode at the start of their career through the 80s to how they rode at the end and the journey of what they went on. Yeah. They didn't row the same way. Yeah. It was never the same way. A four-year period might have looked pretty similar, but every four-year cycle there were things that were going on different. Now, you try to contain that, you try to control that, I guarantee they wouldn't have performed. You know, it was that exploration that allowed them to keep taking themselves to a whole new level. Um, what's interesting to that point, Drew, is when, when you, when you, if you guys ever come over to Melbourne and you, you know, you're more than invited, 
And you come to our club and there are photos of all these guys, you know, in regattas, world championships, whatever. But to your point, Drew, yeah, you can see this difference in in technique or style or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, with the with the same people over, over the journey, over the, over the yep. sort of 10 or 15 year sort of, uh, you know, high performance rowing journey. And it is it, what we're talking about before, just exploring, adapting, whatever um to 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 make the boat go faster so but there's there's proof of it in photos in still shots photos. all around the sheds. it's 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 actually quite fascinating i've talked to drew about this two guys about london like his last olympics he's still challenging things to try and get the most out of that boat to roll gb like that's one of the greatest four races of all time yeah. and just what these guys had to do to get that close to triggs hodge like it's pushing that envelope at such an elite level but you cannot be satisfied because it just keeps getting better and better. And Drew was in an environment where he had the courage, he had the leadership, keep pushing the envelope. Yeah, I, I mean, we've we've talked about this on on the pod before. That when when you kind of if you show people that race in 2012 who don't understand rowing that much, it just looks. Well, they kind of, they were together for a bit and then one boat pulled ahead and like, it was, it all seemed fairly sorted. They don't actually understand just how close that was, just how good the rowing was in that race and how tight the margins were. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, run that again 10 times and you're not going to get the, re- the same result 10 times. It, it was just such... And the whole build-up to it, it's like if, if you go back, you know, f- through like 2000, 2004, 2008, you know, th- there was this sense, oh, you know, actually, it's it's the GB4. Um, 2012, it was like, okay, <laughs> okay, th- this is going to be spicy. Th- this is going to be a really, really interesting one. And it, it was a fantastic race. It was just, you know, I remember... I think I, I think I was actually at Sudbury Regatta watching it. I was just like there. I was just like, come on, come on, boys, the whole way through. <laughs> it wasn't that it was like maybe the last five strokes that, you know, you could actually look up and say, okay, I think they're going to do it now. I think they've got it. Um, and, it and it was just great. But, guys, look, I, I get you, you guys have been really, really good with us, and I get it, so it's getting quite late right um round your way do you think we could sort of just maybe wrap up with a few thoughts about the future about um the olympic distance in la shortening about things like coastal uh coastal beach sprints um what do you think about how the sport is moving forward drew you're saying we're not seeing much innovation how do how do we get a bit more to like future proof the sport I, I, I'm happy to have a crack at that, Lou, while, uh, while he's there. Oh, I think he's back now. I think he might have missed the question. So just have a listen, Drew, and I'll, I'll give my two balls worth. I think being an Olympic sport um, is just absolutely critical and whatever we've got to do to stay in the Olympics is, is mission one because as a former lightweight, um, you know, we hung around in the sport because the lightweights got admitted in 96 and I think I was so lucky it was probably, I think, the strongest lightweight program in Australia's history, that period between... 95 and probably 2008. 
Um, lightweight rowing now has been decimated because it's being taken out of the Olympics and there's so few lightweights coming through. You know, what would happen to our sport if rowing was removed from the Olympics? Like, yeah, we've still got the Cambridge-Oxford boat race. We've still got Henley. There's still some interesting races, but the kids that have the opportunity to either earn money or go into another Olympic sport and get that buzz of the Olympics every four years, like it, it troubles me that we've got to start thinking more, I think, flexibly about how we look after our sport, the sport we love. Um, and it, it must involve being in the Olympics, in my view. It's only a personal view, but that's where beach sprints are coming in. Um, I've heard Martin Cross, you know, on his Crossy's Corner talking about a team's event like in US college, like there's got to be ways to make it more interesting. Um, and yeah, we love the sport as it is over 2000 meters, but 2000 meters is only the last, you know, hundred years, 120 years. Uh, they used to race over mm. three miles, four miles. Like we've got to keep evolving. I think as a sport, it's just my personal view, but without it being in the Olympics, I think we've got problems as a sport in building numbers and keeping it at that international level, even for world rowing and visa. Yeah, no, I I agree. I I think it's a little bit of a shame because I'm I'm worried that the Olympics itself might be quite vulnerable in in the next decade or two. Um, but yeah, I I also I also do worry a lot about how quickly the Olympics was able to snap its fingers and say no more lightweight rowing and rowing didn't want that. Rowing wanted lightweight rowing. But then it's just gone from the Olympics, and and that terrified me. Um, but yeah, I mean, sort of Burge, some of this sort of like innovations, like the slightly shorter distance coming up in LA. Do you think that's going to make a major difference to the sport? Oh, I think fifteen hundred meters would have suited me. Um, but uh, <laughs> but look, I I don't know. I I, I you know for for high performance athletes, I think two thousand meters is a you know, is a, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the race distance that we all have been training for for a long, long time. I'm not saying that, you know, 1,500 metres is what Drew and I raced at at school um, yeah. down down on the Barwon River in Geelong with a, with a you know, bend in it and a staggered start, you know, with four lanes, which were all a different depth as well. So, um, but look, I, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously if you look at the Olympics, they are looking for experimentation. You know, we've got BMXing, which I think Drew was probably going to have a look at at one point, and all these other different sports, which are which are you know coming into the Olympics to try and spice it up a bit and, and make it a bit more interesting. Because at the end of the day, to be fair, I mean, unless if you're involved in rowing, it is a relatively boring sport, and you wouldn't sort of you know sit down on a Sunday afternoon if you've got nothing, no involvement in rowing at all. And watch two thousand meter racing. Um, it's 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 not that exciting. So I, I think there's probably room to you know look at different distances, be them longer, shorter, um, whatnot. One of the things that Drew and I sort of had a fair bit of dialogue around the Rio Olympics was um, you know there was some pretty challenging and interesting uh, you know water and weather conditions there. Yeah. You know, but we turn up to a regatta with the same boat to every single regatta, to, to regardless of what the venue is. Now, when you if you're a golfer, you've got a whole lot of different clubs in your kit bag. Now, why can't we have you know if you turn up to a, a course, why don't we have three different pairs that we bring down depending on what the conditions are like? Because it's an outdoor water sport, 
And we should, you know, Drew and I were talking about, you know, race car, craft, boat craft, whatever you want to call it, to adapt to those conditions um, and to, to bring equipment, you know, like the Formula One drivers are on their, you know, wet wet tyres when it's pouring with rain. They still, you know, race in the rain when the condition's really bad, makes it a little bit more exciting, mixes it up a bit, because otherwise what we're going to do is we're going to have to create these venues which are, you know, we joke about it in Melbourne, the Caramacodone, you know, under lights, you know, with 25 degrees, 65% humidity in one atmosphere so that everything's absolutely perfect. So I do think, you know, maybe mixing it up a bit in terms of distance, uh, equipment that we use to, to suit the conditions, um, you know, would be interesting. I'm not sold on coastal rowing, I must admit. It's sort of like a, I'm not against it, but, you know, in Australia, we do a lot of surf boat rowing, um, which is proper coastal rowing, which is actually, you know, it's, it's quite exciting. It's quite dangerous. Um, uh, whereas I see sort of coastal rowing is a unusual hybrid between what we do and, and surf boat rowing. So, um, yeah, so that's probably my, I'm, I'm also very passionate about lightweight rowing. I think that should be, it's the. I mean, if you look at any major regatta, it's the only sort of um, racing where basically everyone's equal. Everyone's around about the same weight, height, use the same equipment. So it literally comes down to who's who's rowing better or who's not injured, and 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 whatnot. So um, yeah, I think the lightweight thing's pretty important in our sport too. Can we can we make a statement here? It's probably. The- you can make a statement, Drew, but I don't know if anybody actually yeah. listens to us yeah. or not. But... Yeah, let's make a statement. It's the most stupid decision ever. No, no, that's, that's okay. it's just between us. Yes, stupid decision making by a hierarchy that just doesn't get it. Um, the lightweight rowing was always the closest rowing events. And if rowing's ever going to be interesting to people to watch, why wouldn't you have the ones that are closer events than the ones that are further apart? It's just mind boggling. Exactly, hundred percent. Yeah, as someone who's never rode as a lightweight and never will, um, but I, I completely, <laughs> <laughs> I complete. I think one of my calves is about seventy-one kilos, but um, yeah. But, but I think I agree. Like it's the most exciting racing. It's fair. It's and it's you know you go to every regatta and it's just awesome. So and and the and the, the athletes are. <laughs> <laughs> they're bitter and twisted. They're good. Yeah. They're good competitors. Yeah. And they're hungry, Burge. They're very hungry. They're very hungry. <laughs> they I, I was actually told no, off by, by we, 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 you know, we probably should introduce Chipper at some stage to this, but when I did make my, uh, my first uh, year a couple of years ago back into coaching and I was at my first nationals and I was walking around the boat park and, and I thought, oh, it's, you know, it's around about midday. I'll go and get myself some lunch. So, so I went, went and got myself a, you know, a ham and, and salad roll or something like that and, and came back to the boat park and, and Chipper came racing up to me, David Colvin, who's a, um, you know, very experienced coach, former Australian coxswain and et cetera, and he literally just, and he's not very, not a big guy and I am, and he just pushed me out of the boat park and said, Burge, you cannot bring food in here while lightweights are, you know, uh, uh, and I'd completely <laughs> forgotten the whole lightweight thing at the nationals where you haven't eaten solid food for about three weeks and uh you're just about to weigh in and race so yeah anyway 
But um, they were yeah. saving your life. They were they were saving your life. They would have ripped you apart to get at the sandwich. Oh, yeah, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely, hundred percent. But just just on that about the um the innovation in the sport, what I think, I think all of us. I mean, we we come from a club where on a Thursday night for years, I recall we would challenge and go out and do little sprint races out in front of the club. So you did your serious training, or then we do um, pudding eights for Christmas. You know, eights getting on the water, having a little race over whatever the it is. Christmas pudding eights. Christmas pudding eights, right? So, but this is what I think is bizarre: is why are we doing these things with the the pinnacle, the very peak of the Olympic Games, versus doing these things and really supporting them? So, world rowing and rowing Australia and all this sort of stuff. Going, we want these innovations, but let's do it at the grassroots. Let's do it at the club level. Let's do it at the national level, even. Um, and so for me, having some of that exploration around distance would be awesome. Having some of that exploration around coastal rowing. I mean, what Burge said about surf boat rowing is so true. It's almost like this sport's been invented. And yet in Australia, New Zealand and some other parts of the world, surf boat rowing has been around for over 100 years. Yeah, so then, and, and, and what they do on the water is just extraordinary. And so to not even engage at that level to go, how do we do something with them? Because we have lots of, you know, call it flat water rowers who have done surf boat rowing. And lots of surfboat rowers that have then come across and done some club racing, um, but to not sort of use down the down the chain, use opportunities to explore this sort of stuff like that happened at a country regatta, rather than sort of going, oh, we're doing this up here and it's some sort of new innovation. It's like no, no, rowing's been around a hundred years. All these distances have been rowed, match racing's been done, um, more crews on a water have been done. Mixed genders have been done, skulls have been done, eights, you know, bigger boats have been done. It's all been done, but we're almost blind to it and then go, oh, we'll now do this innovation up here. And to cut away a, what I think is a big heart of the rowing, um, for me, is just just crazy, you know. So, think, so um, I'd love it if you saw rowers where they could get six gold medals at, a, at an Olympic Games, like the swimmers, you know, that, 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 that makes sense. Yeah. Go down the kayaking Absolutely. path. Kikers can get three medals. Um, yeah, and so that's that's great to do. Look after what's core and expand that in some way, but don't cut stuff away that's clearly a part of the core product and the, and the legacy of rowing in its entirety. Lightweight rowing, heavyweight rowing has been around since day dot, you know, so, so um, yeah, it just seems weird just to make a decision like that, that's for sure. And I know it was a long time coming, people talked about it, but they, they could have made better decisions than that. Mm. Cool. There's some controversy at the end of the pod, guys. It's going to get the uh, get the listeners up, right? Okay, mm-hmm. go for it. <laughs> oh, <I> just yeah. <laughs> These two big boys sticking up for lightweights. I like that. Well, we know, we know you, it's better if we stick up for you rather than you stick up for yourself because it'll get very emotional if you stick up for yourself. <laughs> yes. I was a junkyard dog type of lightweight. Uh, no, no, all, surely we, not. We've always had we've had some very robust debates, uh, some very robust debates about lightweights on this on this podcast. It's nice to see someone sticking up for them. Oh, we sorry. just feel sorry for. Them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell uh, you what, guys, you should speak to Peter Anthony because Peter Anthony's one of the best guys you could ever get on a pod. But he's created this group for former lightweights to try and stick up for the lightweights, and it's like a discussion yeah. group internationally and. He's got some of the best lightweight guys on the planet uh, as part of this forum. And um, he's very passionate about it because he's a guy who actually won a lightweight single skull title. And then that was in 1986. And then 92 Barcelona Olympics won the heavyweight double. And just an incredible story. And he's a guy who was, you know, a huge influence on me as well. But when you talk about passion for lightweights and what it's done for him, what it's done for the sport, yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, to Drew's point, it is an interesting 
um, point about the lightweights getting cut, but I really believe it's for TV and um, we've got to make sure, in my view, to keep rowing in the Olympics. And if they cut the lightweights, maybe it's the price you have to pay. Well, maybe rather than cutting the program, what they need to do is to expand it. So you you do have the 2,000, you still have the 2,000 metre distance, but then you might have the team sprints or you might have yeah. the, the mixed, you know, I, I'm currently rowing in a mixed quad and I don't want to say anything about my fellow men, but there's something about rowing with ladies that seems to civilise blokes because the boat just goes through the water like a bullet. It's unbelievably good fun. Um, but maybe rather than cutting the program down, they need to expand it and make it more of a spectacle and make it give it more elements, and which then opens the field for more rowers to get involved. Yeah. The idea I have is that you have a lightweight pair or a lightweight double, and they have to jump into the eight as well, so you can double up. So you yeah. might have, you know, men's pair, lighty double, and make it mixed, uh, a lighty women's double and a, a women's pair, as an example. But yeah. imagine like the quality of that rowing and how close that would be over 2K. Mm-hmm. And then, so I, then make so them do 500 metre relays. Yeah. I, I think 500 yeah. metre sprints is, then, is a pretty exciting thing to, if it could be brought in at Olympic level, it would, because you'd bring in a, a completely different type of athlete as well. So it'd yeah. be quite, quite interesting. That's right. Yeah. And I'm disappointed because out of all this, no one's mentioned the drinking game competitions of, you know, being at the bar and, you know, enjoying ourselves. So, like, seriously, guys, like, you're adding all these events. Let's get really serious because if it wasn't for drinking at the, at, the, at, the, at the club, I wouldn't have rode Beyond 93. It wouldn't have we happened. Could, so, and Andy, you wouldn't have got much more Beyond 93. We, we could even introduce through things like uh, rollerblade racing out the front of the, you know, the, the club. Yes. The, the yeah, week before yeah, you head over to Okay, that joke about so we talked about cross training before. <laughs> but have, have you guys seen the the rollerblade racing at the World Games? Uh, we've drew no. it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Look, look up. It, 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 it's on YouTube. It's absolutely brilliant. They've got like, I think it's how many some... how many pints did they have before they got on their rollerblades? Though? That's the question. You could do that. You could do like every four laps. You yes. got to like neck half a pint. And yeah, then you no, keep going. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is innovation now. This is this is taking the yeah. sport to a whole new level, I reckon. <laughs> well, Sam, you were talking about curiosity before, Drew, and I think that's where, where we're at now. We're in that curious space. We'll send the link to Mark Davis, but we'll send the link to we'll send the link to Mark Davis at uh, at, at British Rowing and see if he can somehow you know li- magically make some of these things happen, even if they just start happening. <laughs> Even if they just start happening at, at at the club level, and then they they filter up. So rather than a, a top down filter, it becomes a a groundswell going up towards the, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, we've Sorry, got we've got some mixed racing guys. Like we do a ton of that here, and like the ability for my daughter to jump in with Drewy and have a race and get a medal was outstanding. And we've done a lot of mixed rowing, uh, mixed quads, um, mixed doubles. It's just fantastic. Hey. And it just wouldn't have been heard of in the 90s. And now here we are having guys and girls train together, be competitive together, and then socialise together after the event and just making it fun. So I think there's a lot to be making, making it normal as well, which is great. Yeah. And I don't think there are a lot of sports that you can actually get guys and girls on the same team for it to make sense in the same way that it does for rowing. You know, mm. if you look at the mixed re- relays in swimming, they're already finding that they can't have girls against guys in the same leg because yeah. the girls just get swamped by the weight from the guys. 
So yeah, okay. they're, they're sending, it's constantly, it's always the girls lead out and yeah. the guys bring it home for the last two legs, which is, yeah. it's, it's a little bit of a shame. You, you, you'd like to see that kind of like, every you know, risking sending the guys out first and then seeing how long the girls can hang on for. But in rowing, you put, you put two men, two women in a boat. That is going to be, and, and you've got a field like that. That's just going to be an awesome field to see, particularly if you're seeing them from, you know, you, you were talking about having like mixed boats. What I'd really like to see is like mixed nation boats. So what they do at the World Masters, but just like give, give the athletes like three days after the eights final just to mix in the Olympic Village and just put crews together of their own. Just mix crews. I'll tell you who would love that. That, that, that sounds like the National Road Championships in Australia where you just sort of, there are all these composite crews that, you know, people meet up at the bar at night time and then the next day you're in a composite crew. Yeah. But anyway. But uh, I reckon uh, Matthew Pinson would have been fantastic for that to row with Australia because I just know how much Matthew loves Australians. So can you imagine does. that, Reed? <laughs> Gold right there. Yeah. <laughs> But I think, I think coming back to the coming back to the mixed crews, there's, um, you know, with our club program, we actually do a lot of that, and particularly racing mixed eights, and 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 quite often it ends up being, you know, four boys in the in the stern end and four girls in the bow end, um, and and one of my co-coaches, a guy called William Legg, who he's he's sort of uh, semi-retired now, he's up in Canberra, working at the department. He's a former lightweight as well, very bitter and twisted. Um, but he um, he and I have got some IP around mixed rowing, mixed gender rowing. Um, so I think, uh, I can't remember, was it you, Lou, who said you're, you're rowing at the moment in a, in a mixed crew or something like that? No, no, that was, that was Aaron. That's me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we, we'd like to actually, it'd be interesting challenging you guys to, to you know, see if we could get a, an eight or a four out mixed against you guys just to see if our, our mixed rowing IP actually stands up because we think we've actually got something pretty special that we're not letting on to anyone else. So, so just, well, I mean, just you, mentioned, you mentioned the idea of us coming, you know, down to visit. The idea of broken oars down under is remarkably seductive. Um, it would be, it would be Ooh. great fun. I'm not, I'd, I'd have to ask the, the other members of my quad whether they, they fancy the trip, but it's basically a rowing hole. Holiday, so I'm not. I'm not sure what they'd object to. To be fair, well, you want, we, we could organise something like Head of the Yarra, which is which is actually an eights race, yeah, um, yeah. and that would Two probably weekends. be the most uh, appropriate one. It's 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 five miles. Is it five? Eight, eight and a half kilometres. It's eight and a half k, isn't it? Yeah. Agecroft yeah. did it once. Agecroft yeah. went over and did it as part of a training camp. But we used to, uh, yeah, was in the, in a tide. It was massive, but that would be a good one to do. Yeah, and also Peter Anthony's Melbourne Head. Um, that's another yes. good, uh, good regatta that's around a similar time. You can double up and do. Week I think they're one weekend apart. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're one week after after the other. So yeah, okay, awesome. Um, and just just to come back to your, your mixed combination piece. So I rode with Andy's daughter in Ballarat, and I was actually surprised that when we got off the water, Katie sat in the stroke set. I sat behind her. We had an awesome race, and um, and then someone turned around and said, "Oh." why did you sit in the bow seat? And I was like, why wouldn't you sit in the bow seat? And so to your point about where you would put a male athlete versus where you put the female athlete. And so 
I found it strange that their view was, oh, put the male athlete, the stronger athlete in the stroke seat. And it's like, but that's not always the best way a boat goes fast, right? Um, yeah. And I remember Lucy, Lucy Steffen, and this was 2013, um, I was doing the head coach role. Her pair partner, um, Charlotte, was had a rib injury. And Luce was you know, feeling pretty dejected. And we were standing in the gym and she turned around and said, oh, would you come for a row on the pair with me? I said, like, absolutely, right? And so she stroked the pair. I sat behind her. And what I loved about it was it made me tune into the feel of matching up. Yeah. And then it gave her the thing initially where she thought she had to row harder. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, no, you'd have to row harder. Just do what you're doing and we'll match up. And once we matched up, and we actually did some rating pieces, but her confidence afterwards and my sense of feel in the pair, because I hadn't been rowing a pair really properly for 12 months, I loved it. So so two combinations, one with Luce, one with Katie, for me is that it's, it's still just working out how to make the boat go as fast as you possibly can, right? And so there's a real joy in that, as Andy sort of described, seeing the mixed combinations that we have in, in Australia right now. Yeah, I we think did, people um, might have asked that question, Drew, because my daughter's 14 and you've got three Olympic gold medals. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I was trying to keep up with her, Andy. It was it was <laughs> trying to keep. Yeah. <laughs> to be to be fair, um, in the quad we experimented with the lineup, but eventually we worked out that if we put Catherine at stroke, who's fantastic stroke, lovely to follow, James at three. So rather than me at stroke and James at three, and then the ladies going down towards the bow pair, we put the boys in the in the middle. Because even though we're, we're rowing a slightly longer arc, basically we are matching up with Catherine in terms of you know catch and finish timing, and then Jill just kind of controlling things from the back. And what we found was by mixing it up like that and breaking it up, yeah, you have to you have to feel for the feel. You have to feel yep. for okay, what well, you know, what's the rhythm here? We can't just hump it along and expect the girls to kind of you know in the we can't just pull in the middle and expect it to go well. We have to blend. And that's been, it's been a fantastic learning experience. And um, sitting a, a little bit further back and being able to kind of see a little bit more of the, uh, from the kind of the bows and looking down, you can really feel it, when it started to click, there was a there was a sense of all of a sudden the boat was, you know, how much run can we get for, for yeah. the same work? You know, just how much can we give it? How much time can we give it? And it, it went from being quite, not scratchy, it was great from the start, but it's just been stepping up every week. It's just yep. been a fantastic experience. That's awesome. No, brilliant combinations. Right, guys, I think, you know, Drew, I'm worried about you getting home here because it must. it's, it's 11 o'clock your time, right? No, it's, it's, it's only 8 o'clock. Oh, right. oh, oh, clock. I've got a, oh, that's all right. That, I've, just got, I've just got an hour, an hour to drive. That's all okay. Right. Well, we've, <laughs> we've, we've kept you for two hours and it's been fascinating, but I've got a feeling we could probably go for another two. So why don't we call it a day here? Thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time. And actually, I mean, it's taken a little while to organize. I appreciate that. But the My fact bad. you've stepped up. Lewin's doing some professional qualifications at at the minute. But, you know, also it's, you know, Australians. What do you expect? Um <laughs> I'll I'll leave the I'll leave the call now, shall I? It's been amazing. It's been genuinely amazing to finally get it to happen and hook up with you. It's been so so positive. Yeah, thank you very much indeed, you guys. Um, we appreciate yeah, well the opportunity. And I think um, we're now doing the talking over one another thing. Okay. Yeah, well, this is basically what we do on a Thursday night um, around the bar at Mercantile. But we're just doing it on a different platform with two guys from the UK. So um, <laughs> yeah. and, and listeners. So we're glad that everyone's been able to put up with us. 
because usually people just walk away, don't they? Um, so, yeah, because we're just arguing with each other about these, you know, trivial matters to do with rowing. It's 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 rowers and rowing. If you, you find a rower, you'll always end up talking about rowing. Can I just ask, I know, uh, Drew, you've been doing a lot of work um, with um, support for cancer charities and that kind of thing. Is there anything that you guys would like to flag up, point us towards, send us links and we'll put them in the in the show notes and that kind of thing, just a heads up for anything that you'd really like to headline? I'm, I'm doing one thing this weekend coming up. There's a charity bike ride. It's an indoor ride. Very special kids is what we're fundraising for. And uh, we've got a little team of six that's getting together on the indoor trainers, which is using Zwift. So that's uh, that's coming up this weekend. But you've just mentioned Tour de Cure. I think um, yeah, I'm a big advocate for uh, what we can do in terms of uh, finding a cure for cancer and getting right behind that. We'll be doing some more activities at the end of the year for that. There's about six of us that are planning to do a bass straight crossing to raise funds for, for, for cancer there. So uh, there's a few things on the horizon, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think I think just sort of to back Drew up there, like all of our families have been affected by, um, mm-hmm. you know, the by cancer. And I think the, the, the work that Drew does with, with, with all of that and very special kids, which is which is a great thing. So, um, yeah, we, we, we definitely throw our support behind, um, you know, Drew's, uh, Drew's things there. Yeah, if you just send us the link to that, and we'll we'll stick it in the show notes. 